Probably the most difficult thing for a parent to experience is losing a child. It's often been said that the English language fails us in this area. A woman who loses her spouse is called a widow. If a man is the one who survives his spouse, he's a widower. A child who's lost their parents is called an orphan. But why isn't there a word for a parent whose child has died? Well, it turns out there actually is a word for that. Viloma is a Sanskrit word that's been used in Hindu philosophy for centuries. It's a compound word made up of two words, vi, which means against, and loma, which means hair. The word viloma is often translated as against the hair, or against the grain, or against the natural order of things. In recent years, the word viloma has gained popularity outside of Hindu philosophy, and it's now used to describe a parent whose child has passed away. The term viloma parent refers to a parent who's experienced the loss of a child, which is considered to be a violation of the natural order of things. Ashley lives in Florida, and she knows about that experience. And she's using her story to help other people avoid what she's been through. Real people in unreal situations. There is a girl hanging by her broken leg from the telephone wire. And I called 911 and I said, I found a baby. I turned around. I see a gun pointed at me close enough I could touch it. She would hold our heads underwater all the time. He levels the gun, pulls the trigger, and I go down. Her eyes were full of tears. She didn't want to leave us. My hair catches on fire. I swear to God, this, is, this image is burning my head for the rest of my life. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes, and it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is, you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad and then on with today's episode. I'll confess, sometimes I let my podcast playlist get out of hand and I get way behind. But there's one show that I subscribe to and any new episode goes right to the top of the queue. That's the Jordan Harbinger Show. That's because I never have to figure out, okay, is this one going to be interesting or do I wait for the next one like I do for some shows? Because Jordan's conversations are always a must-listen for me. 
He talks to fascinating people from any category you can think of. Authors, scientists, athletes, you name it. He's talked to undercover cops who posed as mafia and the actual career mafia hitmen. And the stories he gets out of these people, just incredible. In one episode, he talked to Paul Holes. You might know that name if you're into true crime. He's the former investigator who uses really advanced methods to solve cold cases, including the Golden State Killer. And another one I really enjoyed was with Sam Harris, an author and neuroscientist who promotes skepticism, and he doesn't mind taking on some seriously controversial topics like politics or religion. That one's going to make you think. Whenever a new episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show pops up, I already know it's going to be an episode that I'll enjoy listening to, and I'll bet you will too. For some episode recommendations, check out jordanharbinger.com start. Or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You were actually living here in Florida when this happened, right? Can you just kind of describe what your life was like at that time? I'm a born and raised Floridian. I've been here all my life uh, in South Florida. And at the time, I was 27 years old with three children. So I was a very young mom. I had my first at 17 and then married her father. We had our son and, you know, that we were just too young. We wound up divorcing very early. So that was Maya and Joshua, my two oldest. And then after that, I did get into another relationship where I then had a child, uh, my third, which is Gabriella. Or Gabby. Or Gabby, right? yeah. Yeah, we, we called her a lot of different nicknames, but yep, single mom of three, 27 years old, out there doing it on my own. <laughs> that is just, for me, that's incredible. You had, uh, Maya was 10 years old, Joshua was four, and Gabby was just 21 months old, not even two years old. Yep. And you're working full time, you've got three kids. How are you making that work? Oh, man. It, I, I say that I was doing it alone, but I really wasn't. I mean, I have an extremely supportive community. My family is incredibly supportive. And without them, I, I, I don't know what I would have done. So it all came down to the amazing support that I had and still have today. And you were in a, uh, a, a small two-bedroom apartment at the time. Right. Yeah. On the third floor, mind you. So that was always a hassle when I had to like bring in the groceries. I mean, there were nights that I just got upstairs and like cried because it was so difficult just to do the regular things, you know, with three small children. It was, it was very, very hard. Yeah. Three flights of stairs, you get your cardio in every day. (laughs) I guess that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. This was in April. Maya and Joshua's paternal grandfather died unexpectedly, which meant you had to travel. Can you just tell us about that? Yeah. So I think it's really important to kind of make that distinction of how close I was to Maya and Joshua's father and his family. They, even after our separation and even after I had Gabby, they were just so, so supporting. They treated Gabby like if she was their, you know, grandchild. And so I remained very close with the family. And my kid's grandfather, Edgar, had passed away suddenly, which was just such a blow to the family. I mean, we were devastated. He was like a second father to me. So we drove. It was uh, two hours away. 
And we took the drive up there for the funeral. I remember Gabby was running around just being her wild, you know, one and a half year old self at the funeral. And it was, it was a hard time, but we were just in it together. And I'll try to be clear about the names of the people. It can get a little confusing, but Tina was Edgar's wife and she and I had formed such a bond. Our children were about the same age. We really relied on each other when things got tough and she was going through the loss of her husband. So we wanted to be there for her and for the kids, even after the funeral. And you spent some time there, right? Or how long were you visiting with them? Well, so that was in April, the funeral. And then a month later, we decided to go back up. So that was almost to the day a month later that it was Memorial Weekend, and I said to the kids, you know, let's just go over there and, and spend time with Tina and the kids. And my kids were so excited about that because it meant a lot of fun. You know, we, despite what we were going through, being together was just the best thing for our hearts. So we made the trip up to Lake Placid and just planned to just be home and spend time with Tina and with the kids and barbecue and swim and all the all the stuff you do on a holiday weekend in the U.S. It, it almost seems like that trip would be more important than the trip for the funeral. You know, because when something happens, you're making funeral arrangements and people are bringing food and all. There's a lot of activity and thing. But after that all stops, then she's left there. And, you know, when you come a month later, it seems like that would be really important. Yeah, that's that's really true. That's absolutely true. Yeah. We went up there, I guess it was Friday, maybe a Thursday or Friday that we drove up. And the whole weekend was great. Um, we were surrounded by each other. We had a lot of fun. I remember even, I think we played, I don't remember if it was ping pong table that she had in the back. You know, they, they, they made their house so welcoming. So we had so much to do over the weekend. It was just a beautiful, beautiful weekend. We spent the time cooking, swimming, all that fun stuff. And then when Monday, the actual Memorial Day rolled around, we had done the same things throughout the day, being in the pool. That's what the best way to tire the kids out. And so we wrapped up the day. It was towards the evening. It wasn't quite dark yet, but it was getting there. And it was time to start packing up the kids' stuff and make that two-hour drive back home. That day, my oldest daughter, Maya, had been really, really sick. Like she was just vomiting profusely. I mean, she was really, really sick. And so I was trying to keep the, you know, Joshua and Gabby entertained with the other kids while also making sure that Maya, you know, had the bucket by her. She had fluids. She had, you know, I was kind of torn between the, the two tasks. I remember that Tina had told me that she had like a a camera and photography is a hobby that I do. And she was telling me about some extra equipment that she had or something along those lines. So all the kids had come inside for the day and I'm thinking, okay, while I'm packing up, Tina's going to show me to find this camera equipment that I can take home with me. So we were in the garage looking through some stuff, trying to find it. And when I came out, Maya said to me, mom, where's Gabby? And I remember how my heart dropped because anyone who has toddlers knows that when you haven't seen them even for just a minute, 
they could really be getting into some trouble. But I didn't think anything too crazy right away. I just knew I felt a short like sense of panic because I had not seen her for a few minutes. So in my mind, I thought, well, she's probably in the room with the kids. Maybe she's quiet because she got into some toys or is making a little bit of a mess. But I didn't go to the room to check, which to this day, I don't know why, but I did instinctively go to the back door. And so I went to the back door, not really thinking that I would find Gabby back there, but it was locked, which gave me even more reason to think, okay, she's probably in the room. But I still unlocked the door and went out into the patio area. I probably would have stopped in that patio area if I had not noticed that the pool gate was down in one corner. I still didn't panic in the moment, but I cautiously kind of just walked over to that part where the pool gate was down and stepped over it. I started scanning the pool. And it doesn't make sense to me how this happened because of the position of the pool gate, but I started scanning with my eyes from the shallow end to the deep end of the pool. And the gate was open at the area where the deep end of the pool is. And it was dark now? It was not dark. It was kind of dusk. So the sun was setting, but it was not dark just yet. I scanned the pool. This is all in slow motion for me when I remember it. And when my eyes reached the deep end is when I saw her floating. Um, and it's so vivid to me because I remember dressing her that day after her bath and brushing her hair because she had big, beautiful black curls. I remember putting on the pink skirt and her pretty little top and brushing her hair into a ponytail. And I told her, oh, Gabby, in Spanish, I said, you're so pretty because she loved to hear that. I just vividly remember seeing her in that pink skirt just floating there. She looked like she was asleep. But her face was blue, her lips were really blue, and I let out this guttural cry that any mom or maybe even a spouse that has happened upon their loved one in that kind of a state, it's just, it, it sounds animalistic. It's the only way I can describe it. So I let out that cry and I like scooped her out of the water and laid her down on, next to the, to the pool. And at that time, Tina heard my cry and ran out, and I was frozen. I did not try to do CPR because I was screaming and frozen. I didn't know what to do. I started like praying and begging for God to do something. So Tina jumped in to try to do CPR, and she... I don't even know how long that happened. I know I picked up the phone to call 911. But when they asked me the address, I blanked. I don't know. I just couldn't think of it. And I knew it very well. It wasn't your address anyway. Some people can't think of their own address in a situation like that. But you weren't even home. Right. Right. So I handed it the phone to uh, Tina's oldest daughter, who gave the operator uh the address tina was still trying to do cpr and my children who had been 
Maya was inside and Joshua had been playing with the neighbors, I think in the backyard next door. And so at this point, everyone's coming to the patio, to the backyard area to see what all the screaming was about. And so I think back to that time on what my children witnessed and seeing their sister in that state. And it's really tough to, let alone to have my own recollection of what happened, but to think about what my children were feeling and Tina's children and Tina herself. I mean, it's extremely traumatic for everyone involved. After some time, you know, it always seems like forever when something like this is going on, but the ambulance did arrive. I remember the EMT running in. I believe he grabbed Gabby up and ran outside with her. I don't think he tried to perform CPR right there by the pool. But I do remember him stopping in the front of the house and laying her down on the sidewalk and trying to do CPR there. I'm not sure why that was. Maybe he noticed she wasn't responsive and wanted to take quick action. I don't know. But he did try for a minute or so to perform CPR on the sidewalk in the front of the house before taking her into the ambulance. I was not placed in the ambulance with her. I don't remember if they told me I couldn't. I, I can't recall why that happened, but they had shut the ambulance door and were just stationed there, not moving, not driving away. I think they were working on her in the ambulance. And I just dropped to my knees in the street and prayed and prayed and prayed. I mean, I had scratch marks on my knees in the following days because of how hard I hit the floor, I think. Someone came behind me and was trying to console me, and I don't even remember who it was. And I don't remember how long I was there, waiting and praying. Time becomes irrelevant. You just, you, it's such a tunnel vision that you've got one thing you're thinking about. Yeah. It makes sense that they may have refused to have you come in the ambulance because they're trying to work on her and you would be a distraction, even though you would really have wanted to be there with her. She stood a better chance without you there, probably, as harsh as that sounds, you know. Yeah, I, th I think it makes sense now. And I, I don't think I was, you know, banging down the door or anything. But I, I all I could do was just to, to sit there and wait. And so, I again, cannot tell you how long that was. It was probably a lot quicker than it felt. But there was another ambulance that came and put me in the front seat. And that's when we started driving to the hospital. And that drive, I, and you know, my recollection can be, can be wrong in some cases. But what I remember is that it didn't seem like we were in a rush. I don't remember if there were sirens. I think they probably had the lights on. But at one point, as the ambulance that I was in, was following the other one down a winding road, because this is kind of a country area. I turned to the driver and I said, why aren't, why aren't we going faster? I don't remember if he answered me at all, to be honest. We were directly behind the other ambulance. So to me, it just didn't feel like we were going fast enough. A regular car ride from her house, from Tina's house to the hospital, would probably only be five minutes. It, it's not a far drive at all. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. 
there are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code 25what. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Ah, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV. And her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com/what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com/what. Hey, this is Scott Did you know we offer a premium feed of this show that is completely ad-free and there are bonus episodes? Go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus or just click the link in the show notes of any episode to learn more and to sign up. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can sign up right there in the app by clicking Try Free at the top of the episode list. And I hope to see you in the premium feed soon. So we make it to the hospital. They rush her in. Uh, I was just pacing the hall of the ER, just frantic. And I remember a lot of buzzing going around, you know, staff running back and forth. And at some point I did finally hear a code blue being called over the intercom. And I think that that was the point where I 
I had to accept that this was really happening and that that she had passed away and that there was nothing I could do about it. And I, I wished so hard in that moment, I remember this, I wished so hard in that moment that I could just rewind time for, you know, just like an hour, something simple. I just so badly wanted to do the impossible and rewind time, but I couldn't. I sank against the wall and just sat on the floor and accepted. I tried to accept it. And I never went in to see her after that. Because I think I just didn't want to remember her. I didn't want to see her laying on the table, not responding. I didn't want that picture. And sometimes I regret it. But at other times, I'm like, I think it's probably best that I didn't. Do you remember your last interaction with her? I remember... I'm sure that I, I I interacted with her in another way, but the most vivid memory, the one that sticks, is my last hug with her, which we have a picture of, and it's one that I hold on to because, you know, babies just have that smell about them. They Even when they're a little bit, like, you know, stinky. As a mom, you just want to grab your kid and just, you know, eat them up, and so... In this picture, I'm hugging her and just, I think you can tell. I know what I was doing. I was smelling her and just squeezing her really tight. And so just remembering that, um, it makes me happy. It's bittersweet, but it makes me happy. She was very, very loved. I can't imagine the the value that you place on having that picture yeah. of your last hug. That's got to be just the most important yeah, thing in the world to it's you. It's framed. <laughs> I think I might have it framed twice. It's a very sweet picture. We'll have it in the show notes so people can see that picture. Yeah. Who actually came and formally told you the news? Sometime after the code was called, I was taken into a small room. My mother, father, and sisters had arrived. Maya and Joshua's father had called my parents to say, this is what's happening. You need to get over here. So my whole family jumped into the car and sped two hours. I mean, they they actually got pulled over and got a speeding ticket. For some reason, the cop did not have any empathy. So they got a speeding ticket, but they got there as fast as they could. And they took us all into a small room and told me what I think, you know, I already knew was that she, they had done everything that they could and she'd passed away. My father and my sister, one of my sisters, did go in to see her. But I think it was actually in that room that I began rocking. And I did not stop rocking for probably two or three days. And I also didn't sleep for, I think, at least two full nights and I rocked to the point that my neck was sore and my body was just so stiff, but I could not stop rocking. That was my physical reaction. When you say rocking, you're talking about sitting on the floor and just moving your torso back and forth. Yep. If I was sitting in a chair, I was rocking. That was the most of it. I don't think it was like a standing kind of I think I just spent a lot of time sitting and rocking. 
I didn't know what else to do to console myself. Have you since learned what the psychological reason is behind that or what, what caused your body to react that way? I don't. I don't know. Um, I have spoken to at least one other parent who has experienced a similar situation and they gave me that same recollection. They said, yeah, I rocked back and forth for a while too. And sometimes, I don't know what it is, but you know, I don't know if it's just moms, but sometimes you'll see someone waiting in the store on a, in line to check out. And we just kind of rock. And I think I've heard it called like the mama's rock or something like that. You know, the way you cradle an infant. It may have been something to do with that. That's the best way that I can connect why that happened. The way a mom rocks her baby. A maternal thing. Right. Yeah. Were you the one to tell Joshua and Maya that their little sister was gone or did somebody else? I can't remember. I, I can't remember if they were in the room. It may have been my parents. Um, so much of that day is a blur. And I do remember going into the bathroom because when something like this happens, they do have to do an investigation to make sure that it wasn't, you know, intentional or, you know, negligence. So I did have to submit a urine test to make sure that I was not on any type of drugs or alcohol. And I remember after doing that, a relative came into the bathroom. She wasn't even someone I was very close with, but she just, you know, stood there and looked at me and I said, what kind of mother am I? And I, I broke down because the guilt was just overwhelming. And it was hard not to blame myself for everything that happened. And that was, um, very, very, very difficult to get through that. I would imagine it took some time to work through that. It did. I had a lot of support, but at the same time, I was still just not feeling like this was real. It was very difficult to get through the next few days. I, I actually never slept at my apartment again. I paid the rent for another two months until my lease was up. And then I was staying at my, my parents' house the, the whole time. I never was able to sleep in that house without her again. And I would go one or two days and start packing things up because I knew that we were not going to stay there anymore. And I just remember grabbing her clothes and trying to smell her in her clothes and hold on to whatever, whatever I had left. I laid in her bed and just sobbed for probably hours, I don't know. And then when the funeral came, I remember having to go and pick out a dress for her. And my pastor's wife had said to me, you just make her the most beautiful that you can. You buy her the prettiest dress and the prettiest hairpiece. And that's exactly what I did. But walking through a bridal shop where women were shopping for flower girls' dresses. I was shopping for what my daughter would be buried in. And as we're planning the funeral, there was a time where the funeral director asked me, you know, do you have any other questions about what's going to happen? And 
I was still rocking when I asked this. I said, can I brush her hair one more time? They had to set some kind of boundaries because of the way the autopsy works and the way they cut to examine where they did not allow me to really go in and brush her hair, but I was allowed to place a pin in it. And I bought a really beautiful headpiece and placed it on her when she was in the casket. And I cut off a piece of her hair to keep that I, I still hold on to one of her, her little curls. I've seen the pictures. She had a head full <laughs> of hair. It's amazing. <laughs> she did. She did. And it, it matched her personality. I always like to say that she was very rambunctious. I mean, what 18-month-old or 21-month-old is not rambunctious, but it really matched her personality. She got so much attention when we would go out because people couldn't believe how much hair she had from birth. She was just a head full of hair. That's great that they let you do that, though. And you can put the, what did you do with the lock of hair? I just have it in a, in a airtight bag and it just kind of placed it with some other little items in a box that I keep. And I also have, you know, a box of her favorite, the favorite clothes that I had for her that I swear one day I'm going to get a quilt made. <laughs> so there's some keepsakes, you know, that we hold on to. In the time that followed, did you find that the grief tends to come in waves. Yeah. I've heard that said before, that grief comes in waves, but I kind of like to turn that into, actually, it's more like tsunamis because it's almost like you're, you're walking through a landmine. You never know when you're going to hit something that triggers you. And I distinctly remember that the holidays of that year were the hardest because when you experience a significant loss immediately after, I mean, you kind of pointed this out earlier that it's as time goes on that it gets harder because everyone's life has to return to normal and the person that has lost someone has to find a, a normal that just doesn't feel right, you know, and in this case, it, it never will. I'm always unsure how to answer the question when people are like, how many kids do you have? I'm like, do you want the short answer or the long answer? It's, it's very difficult to tell someone that you've lost a child, especially in this way. They don't know how to react. And then I feel bad for making them uncomfortable. <laughs> but I don't want her to be forgotten either. Yeah, that would be, that, that would be an awkward question that people don't even know they're asking. When they, right. when they do that, yeah. Were the other children open to talking about it, to work through it, or how did they handle it? My son, and I don't know if this is a personality thing or an age thing, but my son is a bit more open with his emotions. He's a lot like me, and he cried a lot. He was very open about how he felt. My daughter, Maya... You know, I still worry for her. She's about to be 18 years old now, but I, I still worry for her because I think she's kind of bottled those things up. And I, for a while, you know, when we were going, um, I was taking them to therapy. My biggest concern was that she blamed herself because she was sick and she, you know, had, she required a lot of attention from me because how sick she was. And so I, I've always had that concern. 
for her. But um, Has she verbalized that? No, she has not. And I think it could just be the way that she manages emotions, you know. But um, we do openly talk about Gabby and, you know, my kids, they always remember her so fondly and we laugh about her personality and all the funny things that she did and we'll watch videos of her and say oh remember that time and you know um i've got beautiful pictures too of the three of them together so those are the kind of things that we hold on to and i think it's something that really kind of shaped them because they were in such they were so young that these types of things mold us into who we're going to become so, yeah, it's it's been a journey. It's been a journey. This this happened a while ago, but it's still something that affects all of us to this day. It's a little more, I want to say, I don't know if positive is the right word, but it was a lot harder on us the first couple years versus now when I share about Gabby. Um, I want to share about her and it still hurts but it's I feel like it's a lot more purposeful now than in the beginning I was just hemorrhaging with pain and trying to understand and cope there's two real reasons that I share the story aside from just you know showing off my my beautiful daughter one of those reasons is to spread awareness. Now, I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm like an activist, but anytime that I meet people or anyone that I know that has a toddler, I do try to find the right time to say to them, hey, um, have you ever considered getting your child into infant swimming classes? I actually had a woman reach out to me after Gabby passed away, and she's got a foundation out here because her son drowned. And she's just such a champion of spreading awareness and teaching people how to prevent it. Because the truth is that Gabby's death was preventable. It was preventable. And there are layers of protection that I think, man, if only I had really understood that, could I have prevented her death? And so there's a lot of foundations and, and parents that I have connected with and they that's part of their story is to get out there and spread awareness. For me, it's to do that and hope that people can learn from this. That's a terrible way to put it, but I have had friends and family say, hey, because of what happened to Gabby, my child is in swimming classes. And I mean, as young as like 10, 11 months old, these babies are learning to self-rescue. And that always makes me feel like, man, I still wish I could have Gabby back, but look at all the lives that are possibly being saved because of her story. So that's one reason. And the second reason would be to spread hope and encouragement for people, because I think as parents, our one job or our main, you know, priority is, just, is them, is keeping our children safe and loved. And it's really easy for me to say, I failed at that. But after some time and looking back, I can gracefully say, you know, it, it was an accident. And this happens to good parents. 
And I would hate for other parents who lose children to just tear themselves apart because I've seen it. I hope to encourage other parents to say, you know, we can only do the best that we can do. And if you gave your child a loving environment, you loved that child as much as possible, then you really did do a good job. You didn't fail, but accidents happen. I think that's really important to know. You know, in this state of Florida, a lot of hot car deaths happen. And before I lost Gabby, I would have been pretty quick to judge and say, what kind of a parent forgets their child? And now I can say, you know, this just, it it can happen to anyone. It really can. There are layers of protection when it comes to pools or water safety with children. And the first one is supervision, but sometimes that fails. And I think actually statistically, it's true that drownings happen a lot when there are pool parties because everyone thinks that someone else is watching the child. But that's one layer of protection. The other is to have pool gates. And another one is to get that child into self-rescue infant swimming classes. It's almost a sure thing that someone is hearing this story right now and thinking, I got to go check the fence around the pool or get a fence. You know, even if you don't Mm -hmm. have kids living in the house, anytime relatives come over or friends, it's so important. It is. It is. And this is something that, you know, I think is also important to say is um, I had been a fan of water wings and puddle jumpers. I think most parents think, okay, this is a, a great thing to keep our child safe when they're near the water. But it's actually, uh, there's been research done that it's, it may be more harmful than it is good for a child to be taught that they can get into the water. Because I believe that Gabby, that day that we were swimming with her, she had the puddle jumper on. And we have a picture of that, right? That was that day. Yeah. Yeah. She's getting in. It's like lime green. Those, mm-hmm. uh, the wings on her arms are the, that's what you call them, right? Um, yep. Puddle jumpers or mm-hmm. water wings. Water wings, yeah. okay. And a lot of people don't realize that it's actually, it can be very dangerous to teach your child that instead of spending the time or or money to get them into uh, self-rescue classes. Because wearing those, they feel like, I don't have to do anything, I'm just going to float. Right, it teaches them a false sense of com- uh, confidence with water, which is something that if you look onto these infant swimming websites and programs, they will warn against it. But if you don't know, you think that you're doing the right thing by putting your child in these devices. They're actually probably not the best thing. I had never heard that before, but it makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Getting through this whole experience, what have you found has helped the most? That's a good question. I think it depends. I think sometimes what works in one season doesn't necessarily work in the others, but I would say what's been consistent for me, you know, I am a person of faith, so I do truly believe that I will be reunited with Gabby again one day. That is my personal belief, and just having that hope is really what keeps me going. 
But on something maybe a little bit more like a tangible level is like having that community, having that support, making sure that I, when I was ready to share this story so that I could see the little glimmers of of hope, like other kids getting into swimming and finding a purpose in all of the pain. Those are the things that help me get through it. Because even to this day, I'm always wondering, I wonder, you know, what, what would Gabby look like? And, you know, she'd be so big now. And how would she sound? And I mean, my sisters and I have even kicked around the idea of getting like an age progression illustration done. I'll never stop wondering what she would have been. And at the same time, I'm like, well, I hope for a day that I'll, I'll, I'll see her and again. So it's a day, day by day kind of thing. Sometimes it gets a little bit easier over time, but it never fully leaves you. Grief is the friend that nobody wants to have around. It'll always be with you. It's a journey. For someone hearing this, maybe they've gone through it or maybe they have questions. Can people reach out to you and how should they contact you? Yeah, absolutely. I love to hear from people. Um, not that I'm ever happy to hear that someone's hurting, but my heart just really wants to talk to people or just listen when someone has something to share that they're going through. So um, I'm happy to receive emails and respond that way. I'm very on top of all of my emails. As a matter of fact, after Gabby passed away, I was receiving a lot of messages on social media. I mean, I want to say hundreds and hundreds of messages from people that were offering their sympathy, but also that had gone through the same thing. So I'm absolutely open to to hearing from people. Well, we'll have your email address in the show notes for this episode, along with pictures so people can go see how beautiful Gabby was. And is there any part of this that we haven't talked about that you want to mention? Sometime, maybe within a week or two after Gabby passed away, my daughter Maya had a school performance that she wanted to be a part of. So I sat there in the cafeteria while she was dancing on the stage, completely shattered, but trying my best to give Maya some kind of normalcy. I was speaking with her teacher, I think it was earlier that day, who was such a, she was such a sweet lady, very, caring. And we went out into the hallway and she said, you know, I, I think she had lost someone in the same way. So she really connected with me. But she told me something that I didn't realize. And that was, I was telling her, yeah, you know, I, I found her floating. And she said to me, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that happens after, you know, after they sink for a while and then they float up, which brought on so much pain and Things that I didn't, I didn't realize because in my mind, I had only been away from Gabby for maybe five minutes, but the possibility that she'd been in the water for a prolonged amount of time just racked me with guilt. I mean, that was very, very hard for me to get over. And the teacher, God bless her, she was not trying to be mean or mean hearted or anything like that. She was just conversing with me about her experience. And that was a blow to my knees. That was so hard to hear. 
Yeah, nobody would intend to bring more pain like that. But sometimes mm-hmm. when you're just, when you don't know what to say, you just say something and then it's not a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of little instances like that. Grief will really teach you how to have grace for other people. That's a way to look at it. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your story. Thank you for giving me and so many others the space to do that. If you'd like to see the full transcript of this episode, or if you want to see pictures of Ashley and her children, you can get all of that in the show notes for this episode at whatwasthatlike.com slash 133. After our conversation, Ashley and I were just chatting a bit. To record for the podcast, I don't use Zoom, but it's a similar setup. The guest and I can see each other, but we only record the audio. And I could see on the wall behind Ashley was a hand-drawn sketch of little Gabby sitting on the lap of Jesus. I asked her about it. She said that after Gabby passed, someone heard about the story and drew that picture. Then they passed it along to Ashley through a mutual friend. But the person who created the sketch wanted to remain anonymous. Ashley still does not know who drew it, but she's grateful to have it. That picture is in the show notes as well. Okay, I have to explain a couple of things about a recent episode. This is about the one titled, Jacqueline Was Attacked by Dogs, which is episode 131. I've had several listeners contact me and ask, what happened to the dogs? What about the people who owned the dogs? Was there a lawsuit? And of course, those are all valid questions. However, we deliberately did not talk about those things for legal reasons. And that's all I can say. The other thing about that episode is this. You may remember that Jacqueline said that she's benefited from EMDR therapy. I mentioned that several of my previous guests have also had a great experience with it, which is true, but I also said that anyone who's been through some type of trauma should go check it out. Well, it turns out I'm not a doctor. Usually when I say something like that, I include a disclaimer, something like, I'm not a doctor, everyone's results may not be the same, so consult your own doctor to see if it might be something that makes sense in your situation. This time, I forgot to include that, so there it is. Always check with your doctor first. And now I have a big announcement, which at one point I thought I might never say. I'm back on Instagram. A couple of years ago, I was on Instagram, and they decided to just shut down my account because they said I violated a rule. I don't know what rule, and they never told me, and no one ever responded to any of my appeals, so that was that. But I'm back now with a new account, and actually a bunch of listeners have already found me there. Really, I think the biggest value in having that Instagram is that you can scroll down and see each of the beautiful graphics for every past episode, all in chronological order. I really love the way it looks, and you can check it out and follow me if you want to at whatwasthatlike.com slash Instagram. Graphics for this episode were created by Bob Bretz, and he also did all the posts on the new Instagram account. Full episode transcription was created by James Lai, and I highly recommend both of them if you need those services. And now we have our listener story. If you're not familiar with listener stories, it's how we end every episode. And if you want to hear a bunch of them, just listen to the last episode. 
That's where I put together all the listener stories from 2021. This time, our story is about a scary encounter on the way to work. Stay safe, and I'll see you in two weeks. In 1981, I was a high school student with a part-time job working at McDonald's. I didn't have a car in those days, so I'd have to walk the two kilometers, which is 1.5 miles in American speak, to work. If I worked later than 11 p.m., the managers were required to give rides to anyone not driving to get home safely. But if you worked in the mornings, you didn't have that luxury. So one weekend, I was scheduled for the morning shift, uh, 6 a.m. to 11 a.m. So this meant that I'd have to get up around 5 a.m., get ready, and then take that two-mile walk to work, two-kilometer walk to work. The walk to work was pretty isolated. I was walking by backyards of houses, and the last leg of the walk was nothing but high fences on one side and a huge open field on the other. I was on that last leg of my trip around 5.30 a.m. It was still dark, and the dark Camaro drove by, slowed down, and then idled beside me. The man driving the car looked older than me, maybe in his 20s or early 30s, and I was suddenly mindful of how alone and exposed I was. But back in those days, I was a very non-confrontational person. I went along with whatever was asked of me. I didn't know how to say no, which is why I was stuck in doing that shift. I had no self-esteem and very low self-worth. I was a prime target for what happened next. The driver leaned out the window and he said, Hey, how you doing? Fine. I smiled back meekly. He said, where are you going? Where are you headed? Can I give you a ride? And I said, no, no, thank you. I'm just going up a little further. He started to cajole me. He said, come on, I don't bite. I can get you there faster. And I said, no, thanks. I'm going to be too early, and then I'll be standing outside waiting to get in. I don't know why I felt the need to tell this perfect stranger that, but I guess that was part of my placating uh, personality. And he said, well, that's okay. We can stop somewhere and go for coffee. So my inner radar is like dinging loudly, almost deafening. And I started walking faster. And I said, no, thanks. A little more forcefully. He wouldn't stop asking. And now, now I'm scared. So suddenly I blurred out, no, no, F off. He stopped the car opened up the door, and had one foot outside the car. And he says to me, you can do this the easy way or the hard way. Get in the effing car. So do you know how fear focuses you in a second? As if a heavy, wet, dark blanket just drops out of the sky onto you, buckling your knees? That metallic taste that fills your mouth? And you have, you've stopped breathing. This all happened to me in a nanosecond. Part of me, the meek people pleaser, almost took a step forward. But then, and I don't know where or how, I got the courage. But a loud, confident, hick-ass voice came out of my mouth and said, 
If you take one more step out of your car, I will scream so loud the entire city will hear me. The guy stopped advancing. He looked at me and he made one more like, get in the car comment. And I said, no. And then he got back in the car and he drove off. So the next five minutes to work were the longest five minutes of my life. I practically flew across the parking lot of the mall and tried to open the doors, but they were locked. So I started beating them frantically, and my supervisor let me in, and I collapsed, crying hysterically. We had the police come in and file a report, but nothing came of it. So needless to say, I never had to work the morning shift ever again. But I wonder who that voice was. That spoke up that day because it wasn't the meek, mild little me, but I thank her for everything.